0: Hey everybody, this is Joshua Hatton with the One Nation Under Whiskey podcast. Now, normally I'm joined with my best friend and business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen, but as travel schedules would have it, uh, we cannot be together. But the good news is, the interview that you're about to hear today is one that he and I recorded when we were in Kentucky in early August. Now, Jason and I spent a good couple of days in Kentucky. We got to spend some time with uh, one Mr. Bruce Russell, grandson of the famous uh, Jimmy Russell and son of Mr. Eddie Russell, who we interviewed a couple times on the podcast. If you want to look back at our archives, you'll find that we did that. One time was episode five, and the other time I don't quite remember, I think what you'll just have to do is, as per usual, go all the way back to episode one. Listen to every episode up until you catch up to this one. So we also interviewed Bruce Russell, and that will be for a future episode. Uh, But today we have Mr. Brent Elliott of Four Roses Distillery. Now, he's the master distiller at Four Roses. He's the guy who's basically in charge of ensuring... Their whiskey tastes like their whiskey at all times, which is an incredibly important job to have, especially considering you've got 10 different recipes that you are in control of. Uh, you've got a distillery that is currently in expansion. They're they're about to um, double everything that they do. In fact, after this little preamble, which, by the way, as an aside, Jason told me to keep it short. Totally the man trying to keep the man down. A little bit after this preamble, I'm going to insert some audio that we recorded on the way to the distillery. On the way to the distillery, we talked about what we expected to do, you know, check out the production, visit the still, you know, so on and so forth, uh, get into the warehouse, all this stuff. What we didn't know at the time was that the distillery was under construction. It's basically a hard hat zone. And what I had forgotten was that the warehouses... Uh, themselves are actually at a different site from where the distillery is. So instead of basically doing an interview by way of a tour of the distillery, uh, Brent took us into the um, Brent took us into the sensory room, basically where they go to build the various, whiskeys that they have where they go to nose and taste batches and so forth. And I'll tell you, it wasn't bad having an interview there either because there you are sitting in the room where Brent and his team, everybody on his tasting panel, basically work to ensure that Four Roses tastes like Four Roses. And that was a pretty cool place to uh, to be in. And just to give you an idea of what the room looked like, in a way, it looked like an old school laboratory uh, with with a bit less equipment than you'd expect. Uh, but what was in there were a bunch of nosing glasses, which we talk about in the interview. But what we don't mention, too, is a massive cabinet that was in the room just to the side of us. And inside of that cabinet, you had bottles of new-make spirit from all their different recipes. As you know, Four Roses has... 10 different recipes that they work with. Uh, A bunch of cask samples and some old bottlings too. And the table that we were at had a nice bottle of uh, Al Young's 50th anniversary bottling, which was out of this world. And some small batch limited editions and some single cask stuff. Just, you know, fun, fun stuff, which we got to taste a little bit of. So as not to make Jason upset... I am going to move along to some of the footage that we recorded on the way to the distillery, and then you get to hear our interview. Hope you enjoy, and as always, please feel free to send us an email or a tweet or what have you. You can email us Questions at One Nation Under Whiskey. You could tweet at us, at One Nation Whiskey. Instagram message us, at One Nation Under Whiskey. Or, if you're on Facebook, go to Facebook.com. Go to the search bar and look for One Nation Under Whiskey. You'll find our business page as well as our group page. And hopefully you'll, you'll like the business page and join the group page and uh, get in on a little conversation going on there. As per usual, whiskey and everything we do... Is spelled without the E, so if you're looking to get in touch with us, please do not use that pesky little E. It will do you no good whatsoever. Anyway, on to the show. So Jason, this is us en route to the Four Roses Distillery, our first ever visit.
1: You're correct, Uh, not necessarily first ever visit. We have on a previous trip stopped to see what was in their store. Oh, in yeah. In their shop. Yeah,
0: if I remember correctly, you know, there was no special editions, but what there was, there were specially selected single barrels for all ten of the recipes.
1: Yes. Yes. And so this will be our first time going around the stills uh-huh. and uh, checking it out with Mr. Brent Elliott and so I'm excited to see what it is, what it holds, what it looks like, what it does.
0: What are the things that you are most interested in learning about going to Four Roses?
1: It's certainly the yeast. Um, as one of our our uh, areas of focus as we go around Scotland, we're always trying to learn more about yeast, but nobody really says much about yeast in Scotland, so that, that'll be uh, that's on my radar to find out about and the low i i don't even know if they'll call them rick houses i wonder if they'll just call them their warehouses they're very low more traditional scottish style i think three high
0: yeah i i think that you're correct i've haven't been there uh i know for a fact that they are low i just don't know if it's you know just one or two floors or just a single floor where they you know, where it's like a traditional dunnage warehouse. But hopefully, hopefully Brent will take us in and we'll be able to see that.
1: For sure. Um, when it comes to the letters on the releases, yeah, you're more familiar with those than I am. What do the letters represent?
0: They basically, they determine what the mash bill is going to be and what the yeast is going to be. So, you know, o, OBSF, OESV, OESQ, all these, you know, there's, if you look at any Four Roses bottle, actually on the neck tag of the bottle, it uh, it doesn't necessarily break down what it is, though they're fully transparent, right? They'll say, yeah, this is 35% rye, X amount of barley. But on the neck tag, what I like is it gives you the general flavor profile of what each recipe will give you mm. right so okay. if it's obsf you're gonna have you know bold spicy fruity you know if it's oesq it's gonna be something different floral or you know something like that just really general guidelines right because you're gonna have the cask doing a lot of the heavy lifting to determine flavor
1: yeah well- it's interesting when you start talking about things like transparency and you start talking about different warehouses from what you find in the state. I think there's gonna be room to get into a different type of conversation with Brent at Four Roses and see what he sees on a on a day-to-day basis yeah. uh, as master distiller there uh, and see what his struggles are. So yeah, I see it being a, a free-flowing, open-ended kind of conversation hopefully with a chance to try some some whiskey, get into the yeast, and, uh, and learn more about a distillery that, honestly, I don't know that much about. Uh, we've had wonderful support with Stephen Shuler, uh, Jerusha Torres in New York. Yes. Yep. Um, and, and some of their Four Roses crew across the United States at other Jubilees. So we've, we've got a wonderful working relationship with them without necessarily knowing that much about the distillery, the ins mm-hmm. and outs of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I see this as a, a fact-finding mission. Ooh, I like that. With booze thrown in for good measure. <laughs> I am hoping that
0: uh, Brent will have some nice pours for us. We shall see.
1: We always cross our fingers, but, yeah, it looks like the rain is starting to pass in this Kentucky morning. We're quarter to eight. Uh, here in Kentucky, we did have a storm pass over, some more storms in the forecast, but uh, yeah, it's still 73 degrees at 7.43 a.m., so <laughs> it's uh, serious business. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's also, you don't tend to show up at, at distilleries at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, in a lot of places, so this is going to be a new one. On us as well. Yeah, that's that's early.
0: I think the the earliest we've ever shown up to distillery may have been 10 a.m. Maybe nine at the, maybe the really nine. Yeah. I,
1: I feel like there's been some nine a.m.s uh, in Scotland. But do you remember we showed up to Kilhoman uh, when we were just starting the company to meet John McClelland? And I think that was an early start that we made and he never showed up. And then he showed up at something like 10 o'clock and said, oh, oh I forgot you boys were coming. Oh, and we'd just yes. been hanging out with the still man in the still house and learning all about the cuts. <laughs> and we turned that into a ton of information yeah. uh, after he uh, kind of forgot about us. So <laughs> so we've had early starts before and uh, they haven't always gone according to plan. So <laughs> so fingers crossed that Brent's had his oatmeal and he's, he's up and at him. <laughs>
0: cool so this is us we're 18 minutes from the distillery and uh, we have to so in case you couldn't tell dear listener we are in the car driving Uh, but this time is different the last time you heard our voices from a car was when we were with Ollie Chilton headed from Connecticut to New York and I was driving I had a microphone in one hand a bagel in the other, and my GPS in the other. So somehow I had three hands that day. <laughs> this time Jason has um, access to both of his hands. Ten and two. <laughs> Ten and two. And, and I'm holding both the GPS and the recording device. <laughs> so if you're wondering what that background noise is, what that strange blinker noise was.
1: I did turn it off. I, I turned at the light without my blinker on. Just since we were sitting there so damn long, and it was one long line, so <laughs> uh, just to make the the uh, oral experience a little oh. easier, au oh. hey, au. Hey, oh
0: oh oh, that uh, oral. To uh, okay.
1: make it a little easier on our our listeners. So. Yeah. But I but well, as we've said before, I always love it when our listeners come along with us in the car on the ride. Uh, it gives us this you know, sense of closeness to them. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoy it. So, so thanks for being along this morning.
0: Thanks for being along and uh I'm going to shut it off now.
1: You were saying next month you're in Indiana. Uh, how much travel are you doing around the United States and the
2: world? Uh it's mostly my travel primarily is in the US. Okay. And it kind of goes in spurts. It's mm-hmm. there's really no no set schedule. It's uh, I try to hit every region at least once a year here in the US. Hmm. Some you know get a little more focused, you know, in some years but, uh, you know, our big markets are, well, now we're everywhere in the U.S., but we still have the focus markets of, you know, New York's big forests, um, the entire state, actually, California, Texas, Southeast, Atlanta's mm-hmm. a really good market for us now, Florida, hmm. Kentucky, obviously, Indiana, Illinois. So I'm trying, it's tough, you know, I'm I'm traveling a lot, um, Al Young, our brand ambassador, yep, he's on the road a lot. He's... Lately, he's been on the road a lot more than me. Okay, is that Um, in part because of uh, the fiftieth? That that was the reason last year. Yeah, he traveled a lot last year. Yeah, yeah, it was the Al show all year. He was, (laughs) but he loved it. I mean, it was you know every time it seemed like man, you hanging hanging in there. How's how you holding up? And you could tell he was getting worn out, but he was loving it. (laughs) It was it was an exciting year for all of us, and especially for Al. Yeah, of
0: course, that's a wonderful achievement for him as well. One of the interesting things i found about this whiskey is it seemed like an old school version of Four Roses. And I'm curious, I don't know the story behind it about the creation of it. Is that something that you created for him? Is that something that he had part in creating? Like, what's the story with that
2: release from last year? Yeah, we created that for him and with him. Okay. So with this product... He was brought in because we didn't want to release anything without his blessing, you know, yeah. it has his name on it. Yeah, and he's been—it's been a while since he's been on the tasting panel, but he's been a lot of things here at the distillery. And the last thing he was, you know, back when he had a real job, so I joke with him about you know when he was <laughs> before he was just traveling and talking yeah, yeah. and writing books and shaking hands. He was the distillery manager, and the way we do things here is, if you're in production, you're pretty much. You're involved in the process, and part of that is being on the tasting panel, the oh, okay. sensory panel. Oh, okay. So he was on the sensory panel for years. Yeah. So he has a good palate. He knows. Yeah, sure. He knows what he likes. So, um, you know, he, he dusted himself off and came back in, <laughs> and the first thing I said, Al, what are you looking for in this? Yeah. And, he really had two, two stipulations or two sort of dream characteristics he wanted okay. at this bourbon. He wanted something older for one. Yeah. And he wanted something totally unique. Huh. So, you know, the totally unique, we try that every year. Sometimes it works, sometimes yeah. it doesn't. And when, when I think unique, I think of using a lot of maybe the Q or the F yeast strains. Mm-hmm. You know, something that we typically use, like in the Four Roses Bourbon, at a small percentage. Yeah. It's kind of as a top note because they're very flavorful, very, very strong in, you know, whether it's floral or herbal, whatever their characteristics are. Mm-hmm. And So that was the first thing that came to mind was okay. Well, let's let's try to utilize one of those those yeast strains and use yeah. you know, More of it than we typically use okay, so that was you know, kind of easy Easy direction to, okay. to accommodate the second was he wanted to use something older Yeah, which that gets a little more difficult You know, we have a lot of older whiskey and we're always every year when it comes time to put together these these small batches inevitably some of those batches are pulled out and I try to incorporate them and in most cases mm. it's that's more difficult to work in okay because you get um you get a lot of good characteristics from some of these old some of them that yeah. uh you know they evolve into some real unique flavors and typically like unique types of fruitiness sure. but you you also get what you'd expect you get a lot of the yolk yeah. you get a lot of sure. sometimes yeah. you know it's almost sour or yeah. flat yeah and you lose some of that vibrant character that, especially for us, that kind of defines who we are because we want those delicate flavors to come through. Mm -hmm. And sometimes once you get out 15, 20, especially 20 plus years old, or even sometimes 10 years, you start to lose that. But Al was talking something, you know, the oldest we'd done prior to that, I think was a 19 year old. So what I was hearing was he wanted to go even farther than that. (laughs) It's like, okay, well, this is a challenge. Let's try this. Yeah. And so there's one batch in particular that you know we've been trying to work into a limited edition there's really nothing we could do with it Mm -hmm. but i wanted to keep it i didn't want to just use it for like the four roses bourbon Mm -hmm. because it was a really good batch but it was just inconsistent it was 20 barrels and some of them were better than others but they were just inconsistent from one to the other so we couldn't really release a single barrel product and I didn't really think it was good enough to stand alone as a single barrel, anyway. But it was mm-hmm. really interesting, very unique. Mm-hmm. It had again, it was that it was an OBSV, and that yeah. that recipe in particular, I think re- sometimes these batches they evolve into something really unique out you know, 12, 15 years plus. Yeah, and uh, this was one of those batches. So that was the one that came to mind when he asked to try okay. something older. Okay. So that was sort of the foundation. There was to work with FQ and possibly this older batch. Okay. And then from there, it just went. Uh, it was kind of the way we typically do things, and that's pulling all the the older batches, sampling them, mm-hmm. and um, first step is just going through and getting very familiar with all the different batches. And when you do that, um, and that's always the part that you have to be patient with, because like the first few times I did this, especially when I first few times I did it on my own. I'd get excited, and <laughs> that very same day, I'd start throwing batches <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. you know, sometimes things work out well. Sometimes they wouldn't. But if it didn't work out, I wouldn't really understand how it got to where it was, oh, because okay. I really wasn't that familiar with the base batches yeah. that went into it. I just got excited, and yeah,
1: uh, that makes good sense. So,
2: yeah. uh, so I've I've learned that's you know, someone says you know, what does experience mean? That would be my my first example. It's like yeah. well. It's not getting too excited because it's fun. That's the most fun thing <laughs> yeah. I do every yeah. year is yeah. putting together those limited editions. Okay. So that's where you know I've learned to really take time on the front end. You'll spend a week or more just every day going through those batches and really getting an idea of mm. all the different characteristics. And that also gives you more time to uh, generate ideas, to get creative, to think how this batch might balance well with this other batch or how, you might find a batch that's very um, very spicy, but maybe it has a little bit too mm-hmm. much of the oak, and you think, well, this batch over here that's very delicate and fruity, that could maybe take off the, the oaky edge of this one and yeah. complement the spice. Or, you know, you have so many different...
1: Do you do that sampling at the at the barrel strength? Do you dilute it down in your, your lab or in your office? At
2: that stage, it's typically both. Okay. That's... Um, because that product's generally enjoyed at barrel strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we do, it depends on the product and what stage of sampling it is. Dep- uh, that, that dictates whether we do it at bottle strength, barrel strength, or 20%. Yeah.
1: You do the 20% stuff as
0: well? Uh-huh. Is, is that what these glasses are for? These, You've got one line and then another
2: line? Uh-huh. That's exactly what those are. Oh, okay. And these cabinets are filled with them. Oh, right. And there are a lot of days where this table, we, <laughs> I know people at home can't see this, we have two round tables here that revolve. Yeah, big but, Lazy Susans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there will be glass all around these two tables up all along the, uh, okay. the countertops here.
1: So so for, for the listener at home, we have the glass. It's a standard Capita glass with one uh Line around it about a lower line, yeah. What maybe a quarter of the way up it's the glass?
2: Twenty milliliters. Okay, yeah. so that comes in at okay, twenty mil,
1: and then there's a second line above the first one, an inch up. about yeah, maybe about the halfway point in the glass, and then is that another twenty mil up the glass?
2: That's another forty. So once it's ah. up that second line, you'll have sixty milliliters. Oh, okay. What happens there is our barrel proof, our intro proof is one twenty yeah now it's not always 120 when it comes out of the barrel so that's not an exact science there but it it helps things okay it gets it close gets it very close yeah so we're pulling it out at 60 percent we dilute it by a third bring it down to 20 percent
0: okay so when you're doing that what are you discovering because you know as when jason and i are selecting casks for single cast nation for our own bottlings we always taste at full cast strength because we're trying to understand, you know, when someone buys a bottle of our whiskey, what is their experience going to be like? But with you, you're you're blending stuff, you're putting stuff together and you're looking for, you know, us, we're just doing the single cast, you're looking to put stuff together. So what are you finding diluting it down by that, around 20% alcohol that that's doing? What shows up that wouldn't show
2: up without that water? Well, it's just kind of like uh, a different perspective on the same liquid, because okay. what you're doing is you're just opening it up, and you're diluting out some of the more more bold flavors and aromas. One okay. being the alcohol. Yeah. But you're you're giving some of those more subtle aromas a chance to hmm. to be discovered or to be to be seen. Hmm. You know what I'm talking about here. You know we do some things one way, some things other. A good example of what we do is like with the single barrel. Yeah. For that, when we're selecting what batches are going to be used in the uh, just standard 100 proof single barrel program. On the front end, at that point it's mostly, it's two ways, barrel strength mm-hmm. and 20%. And with that, the 20% you can see, again, at that point it's just another perspective on it. Okay. Um, one thing I do notice that like the, uh, the oak or the, uh, if it's kind of a suppressed or flat character, mm-hmm. cutting it really shows that more than barrel strength. But oh, okay. tell me, you know, now it's almost philosophical. Is that irrelevant if you're drinking at barrel strength? Yeah, right. And you then know, you wrap the it back up again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it does help. So you can sort of look at two batches and think, well, okay, if someone puts it on the rocks and it starts to, to melt yeah. and starts to dilute, will that oak start to come out or will it, will it kind of collapse and be more of a um, a flat character yeah. to, the, yeah. to the whiskey? But uh, like the single barrel, we'll look at at barrel strength and, and 20% to select the batch. So it's, okay. that's pretty intense, trying to figure yeah. out which are the best batches of that particular recipe of that age sure. to be used for single barrel. But once a batch is selected, we know that batch is good. Okay. And the next step there is approving. It's not really evaluating. It's just approving the individual barrels from that batch. And at that point, that's when I was saying we might have samples lined up all around the room. Nine times out of ten, if you walked in here and saw that, that would be what's set up. Hmm. It's just individual barrel samples, okay. all at twenty percent. Yeah. At that point, it's not even tasting. It's going through because you're looking at seventy-five to one hundred and fifty samples. Yeah. And you would think that's that makes it more difficult because you're having to look at that many samples and you're having to smell through those. But I kind of use that like the fact that your your nose kind of goes numb after yeah. the first couple <laughs> samples, yeah. even at twenty percent. Does if, it start? If you to, go through, you yeah, yeah it's get that fatigue. You get that fatigue. Yeah. But at least for, for my nose, I can use that to my advantage because what I'm looking for there is consistency and making sure that there's no outlier, something that has um, any deviant character okay. whatsoever. Sure. Okay. And so once you kind of go, you get that baseline, and it's not like you're not smelling anything, but you kind of get used to that same aroma. yeah. yeah. And if there's any deviation, whether mm. it's a little flat, a little too oaky, um, maybe some kind of off woody note, That sticks out. It's so obvious.
1: What was interesting to me when you just said a moment ago, diluting it down, if you've got bold flavors, it can calm them down and let some of the subtle come out. I would have imagined that taking a subtle note and taking it down to 20, you would lose it entirely. But that doesn't happen.
2: Uh, you could probably say it either way. It's, you know, there's good and bad. I will say that I don't enjoy my whiskey at 20%. Yes. <laughs> that seems like a safe bet. I don't, when yeah. I first started, I tried to make myself, because I was trying to learn at home too. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd yeah. in the day, I'd be smelling samples and trying, then I'd go home and be like, I'm going to cut this to 20%. And really, and <laughs> oh, oh, oh. It's like after a while, I was like, now nah, this, yes. there might be some learning benefit to this, but I'd, I'm not really enjoying yeah. you know, this at 20%. But it's more for the smaller aromas that are hidden. Okay. But you can still see the delicate aromas that for, I think essentially it's the, uh, well, the distillate's a good example, 140, when we come off the still, the alcohol really gets in the way. If you smell two samples back to back, one off the still Tuesday versus one came off the still on Wednesday, it's going to be really hard to see any differences because of the alcohol. Sure. Cut it to 20% and it all opens up. You can smell the... Influence of the yeast, you can smell the influence of the grains, and hopefully there's nothing else that shouldn't be there. But if there is, mm. you know, it's it's rare that we see something bad. Sometimes it might be a little bit grainy, mm-hmm. um, not a bad thing. Um, something that is bad that you is. It's a great example here: um, must or mold, mm. and that happens occasionally. Not it's maybe happened a half dozen times since I've been here. And like a mold in, in the years. grain,
0: and then that gets
2: exact distilled through and affects the the spirit Uh uh-huh and that's one of the defects that will not age out you could have a you know a little bit of a grainy distillate or you know small deviations from the standard and 99 times out of 100 the barrel will take care of that and you'll never know any different yeah in five or six years but with must or mold Mm. it doesn't matter how long you age it if it goes in with just a hint of that 20 years later When you dump it, that will still be there. Wow. So how does it present itself? You only see it when you dilute it. It would have to be really intense to smell it in Mm. full-strength distillate. Yeah, yeah. But you cut it down to 20%, Yeah. and sometimes it's even even beyond that. It has to sit for a while before you see it. So we try to make a, a habit of cutting the distillate. I typically look at it right then, but I don't look at it right then only. Okay. I'll look at it ideally about an hour after you cut it. But then in many cases, you know, throughout the day, if I'm just walking by, I check it and same thing for the other people on the panel. We try to huh. keep an eye on it and usually keep it set up for a couple of days. So there are usually three or four okay. samples of distillate, distillate set up you know, yeah. two days back up to the current. Okay. And then we also look at that same distillate again at the end of the month. And we do that as a group. We all okay. sit down and we go through individual one by one and discuss the characteristics, give it a rating, make comments now, at that point, that is more for our records because okay. by then, it's already in the barrel. So if there was something, there was muster mold, <laughs> and we missed it yeah. during the daily, mm-hmm. then you know, it's just academic at that point because it's okay. already in the barrel. Okay. But that's why we spend a lot of time on the front end is making sure, that's the approval to make sure it's okay to yeah. go in the barrel. And then at the end of the month, we get all the lots from a single month together, okay. and we all sit down together and we go through them.
0: So we had, um, I know I, I had a question before I wanted to ask about uh, you know your your role as master distiller and I, I'll get back to the actually this may touch on it a bit Okay, but we had uh, a conversation with with Scott and Becky Harris from Catoctin Creek uh, and this was our last episode and okay. she She made a very interesting comment, and I'm curious about your thoughts on it. She said mashing and fermenting creates flavors and distilling selects flavors and You know, here, here you are. You've got your ten different recipes, and I'm curious. You know, does that same thought process apply to four roses? And if so, how how does it? How are you selecting flavors through
2: distillation? Does it? Uh, Does that even apply to what you guys do here? Oh yeah, I think it applies to what anyone does. Okay, anywhere you can't have bad fermentation, and then great distillation. That's not gonna. Get you anywhere, yeah, yeah. And the converse is true too. Someone asked me, "What's the most important part of distillation?" Like, well, whatever part isn't going well that day is the, the most important because every <laughs> yeah. every little piece, yeah. if anything is out of whack, it can ruin everything. So, sure, you can't really put a weighted value on any aspect of the fermentation, mm. got gotcha. or the distillation. Mm. Fortunately, I think you know with us the team we have here the uh the experience you know guys in the distillery have been doing this for for years decades some of them and it's a precise and Mm -hmm. and delicate process but i guess i would say they make it look easy it's a little forgiving and in some ways you you have to watch you know cleanliness is huge you can't you can't have any contamination anywhere yeah but even then it's still probably much more forgiving than like beer where yes. there's oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. because when I say forgiving, you still have the distillation. Yeah. yeah. But you, if you don't have, um, in our case with the, uh, the fermentation, what's so important is the evolution of the right congeners to create the flavors of that particular yeast strain. Mm-hmm. So if you have say an F yeast that doesn't, when it, when it ferments, if you don't get those, those delicate mint and herbal notes mm. evolved in dis, in fermentation, it doesn't matter how you distill it, when it comes off, it's going to be kind of neutral. You're not going to create those flavors in distillation. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, like she said, yeah, you are, you're selecting the flavors through the distillation. Yeah. And the column still is a great thing. You get that dialed in, and that's, that's something that, you know, everyone uses that for a reason. Yeah. Well, several reasons. One is efficiency, obviously, but once you get it dialed in, you look, there are certain, certain uh, set points that you watch and certain pressure points you keep your eye on. And okay. if all that is, is in line, and again that goes back to experience, yeah. then what you're getting off the, off the still should be good. And in most cases it is, and it's, it's hitting the right flavors that we're looking for. And then we look at that in, the, in here, like I was just saying before we put it in the barrel, but it, it all plays into it, it's all equally important.
1: So, so cycling back just a little bit, we've mentioned yeast a, a fair few times so far. Uh-huh. Given, you know, for me with Scottish background here and, and leading tours over to Scotland and yeast is just interchangeable, it's whatever gives you max yield. Where did the idea come from with Four rosies to play around with yeast and explore different yeast flavors? That seems like a either a a small distillery move, a craft move, a nerdy geeky move. Uh-huh. Um, how long has that been going at four Rosies and, and what do you yeah, see from what, it and learn from it?
2: It goes way back before my time. It's it goes back and ties into the Seagram philosophy. Oh. Okay. And I yeah. think you know, it's always been said it was for consistency. And that's certainly true. But I'm sure I know Seagram's had a research department. You know, it's sure. unrivaled, you know, then and now, mm-hmm. and I, I'm sure there's so much knowledge lost that <laughs> people are scrambling to relearn. Yeah, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's a real yeah. shame.
0: It's no records were kept. Yeah, either. there are yeah. very
2: few. We try and yeah. you know, scramble around, and try to hold on to what we have, but yeah, there's so much that that's just gone. Huh. And but part of the, the byproduct of that was they had a department They had such a focus on yeast because they had so many different products globally and their portfolio was just huge. So they had, from what I understand, about 350 yeast strains in their library. Wow. And they knew the, uh, the flavors that each one of those sure. would create. Wow. They knew the, the fingerprint of each one of these yeast strains. And they just used them like you know, tools in the tool chest. They would use particular yeast strains hmm. for different products. So it could be used either to define a product because they wanted a particular flavor mm. to be present in that, that product, or like in the case of the Four Roses Bourbon, that is our, you know, it's our oldest product. For that, it was used for consistency, the different recipes. Okay, and that was how Seagrams defined quality was consistency. Okay, and I totally agree with that. Yeah. You know, that's you you assume you you have a good product, and that I think that's that's paramount. You know, that it's that it tastes good yeah Mm. and uh i know it's subjective (laughs) but you know that you have a good clean product that you're proud of but beyond that if it's something that that changes from week to week year to year then it's a moving target for consumers Mm -hmm. so once you have a consumer base and they expect a certain product you want to maintain that yeah Yeah. and with bourbon and you guys know the the rules of making bourbon you can't do a whole lot to it it's it's pretty natural it's yeah it's the magic of of bourbon really. Yeah. But the flip side of that is you're at the mercy of weather, materials, (laughs) grains. Yeah. And so just by, by design it's going to be a little more difficult to control. So that's what Seagram's that was their idea. There was with the, uh, using different mash bills, different yeast strains, different, ultimately different recipes. Okay. They had control over the final flavor of the product.
1: We keep saying consistency, and obviously, consistency is a a word that we hear through a a lot of the industry. But given that we also hear yield and we hear flavor, and and you just mentioned flavor a moment ago, was there a window for yield that it didn't have to be the max at all times? There could be a a trade-off there. Slightly lower yield, but a good or a different flavor we're okay with. Would there come a point where yield could drop so low that no matter what the flavor presented by the yeast
2: would be, it wouldn't be a viable yeast strain to use? I guess I could see that happening if it were the extreme. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, fortunately for us, it's never even come up. Yield is okay. never even a consideration. Yeah. But that's easy to say because it's never really dropped. You know, if all of a sudden yeah. it dropped to 50%, <laughs> we'd have to say, you know maybe this uh maybe we had this cue yeast all wrong, yeah let's, let's make, but it would have to be severe because quality is definitely the uh that's our our primary objective is gotcha. to make sure that it's a quality product so we we track yield, but we really don't we record it uh-huh. and mm. we don't really talk a lot about it we look at at the quality yeah. that's that's what we're monitoring when we're evaluating yeah. you know, what we're doing here
1: could you speak briefly to? to how the column still works.
2: We don't... I'm so glad. Yeah?
0: Yeah, because... Let me... I'm going to step on your toes for a second. Classic yeah. Joshua. Yeah. <laughs> because
1: don't, you... Don't you, mention stepped on toes. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Cringing. Yeah, yeah
0: what, our, what our listeners don't know is when we, when we first got here, um, we we saw that Brent was limping toward us and just wearing the one shoe.
1: One shoe. Yeah, just the, just the
0: one shoe. And... Uh, Sadly, uh, broke his toe while fighting a bear. I think that's how it goes. Pretty close. Yeah. (laughs) I'll go with that. (laughs) You started talking a little bit about, you know, the the great thing about column stills and why people use them. But a question that I had, and and I apologize for stepping on you, and feel free to ask your question after mine, but... My my problem is is I'll forget you see it. See how we roll here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forget it if I don't bring it up. When you're dealing with your ten different recipes, and you're finally to the point now. Okay, mash is done. Fermentation is done. Now time to distill. Are you setting the plates in the column differently depending on recipe, or are you, or do you have just sort of a uh, a specific setting and then adjust as needed
2: while distilling like how does all that work for you? Well, we're always we have the capability of adjusting the still yeah uh, You don't have a lot of control Over it, really you have the beer fee rate feed rate the steam pressure, steam rate, so there's not a lot that you can tweak there, mm-hmm. but um, so we don't really change it okay. based on recipe uh, we will tweak it based on just you know other factors if it's we watch the the proof coming off the still, the temperatures. Um, we even watch, and this kind of goes back to the yield, the way we balance our stills we look at what's coming off the base of the still, and I think it's more one of the most fine finely tuned points mm. that we watch. We expect a very trace amount of alcohol to be coming out of the bottom, okay, and we monitor that, and right. that's if we don't see that, then we know that. We're we're too high on the steam rate, okay. And subsequently, we'll have we'll be kicking over some of the flavors that we don't want. So that's a that's a really fine balance there. So we're consciously and happily throwing away a little bit of alcohol, okay. Because that's how our stills balance. We know that that's that's going to give us the result that we want. So I'm a pot still guy. Okay. I
1: understand mash going in in the bottom. I understand heat contact being at the bottom. I understand vapor going up. And coming out and condensing. (laughs) Column stills are the inverse of that?
2: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you still have... (laughs) The principle is the same, but when you put it that way, you have the... Yeah. Because the mash comes in up high. Yeah. uh, You still have the heat coming from below. So you have an energy flow from the bottom to the top. Okay. And you have a product flow from the top to the bottom. Okay. And... There it's, as they meet, that's where the uh, this all is the magic remar- happens.
1: Th- and that's remarkable to me. And So solids meet steam in the middle, or s- somewhere. All, yeah. Not accurately in the middle, but uh-huh. at some point between the top and the bottom, they'll come in contact. To me, that just sounds like somebody cascading mash off the side of a bridge, and somebody in a boat under a bridge shooting steam up the way. Like, how the hell is that process controlled?
2: Uh-huh. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. And if you look inside us still, it's absolute chaos.
1: Okay. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> sloshing every which way, and
2: it's... But um, it works. I mean, if you look at... If you just sort of ignore the chaos, and as you put it, which was pretty accurate, just simplified, uh-huh. you're really just... You're taking... Just a mass balance of a bunch of liquid going down and just layers of energy pretty much as you go up. Because the, the heat's dissipating as as it's going up the still. Sure. Makes sense. So you're getting a different concentration. At the bottom, what's coming off the still is essentially you've got a lot of water in the solids. Okay. The things that are, are not volatile until some things that aren't volatile at all. And some the mm. water that's not volatile until two twelve. Not the base of the still, it's hotter than two twelve, but with the flow of the water, you're still getting water coming out of Some water coming out of the bottom, some is going out with the alcohol, also. Okay, but as you go up, compounds that are volatile above that boiling point, in theory, won't go below that level. Gotcha, and the ones that are volatile above that point will continue to go up the still, huh? So, as you go up, you're essentially volatilizing, and that's where the balance comes in. If you pull, you can look at like industrial columns, a lot of uh, the compounds you get for like chemistry uses some of those are pulled off different layers because it, the equil- equilibrium at these different plates yeah especially when you're running efficiently and you're these especially these really tall columns where you're getting really defined areas of, of temperature yep. and equilibrium you can actually say well that plate will have most of these this compound or these compounds on it because that's that temperature range where that is just above its boiling point Gotcha. and but it, it's right there. That's, that's awesome. like where it's going to be condensed and no longer vaporized. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But with ours, it's what we're looking at is just the concentration and the balance of compounds that's coming out of the top of the still. Awesome. And that all has to do again with the beer feed, the steam rate, temperatures. Yeah. And if we keep everything balanced, then we can rest pretty assured that what's coming off the top again, it's from experience, we know yeah. where things should be running and, mm. and so it comes off in most cases, it's, it's perfect.
1: And, and real fast.
2: It's a very yeah, fast, it's fast process. Yeah, it comes off about the rate of like your bathtub spigot. And that's our still. We have a oh, okay. four foot column still. So maybe not your bathtub at full blast, maybe at like okay. 80%. Holy depending moly. Depending on your water pressure. Holy moly. great. <laughs> <laughs> But, Your mileage may vary.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's a lot of spirit running. And then how
2: long will it run? Are you a continuous column still? So we, we come off the column still. Mm-hmm. And then we go, in, and we come off there at about 132 proof. Okay. And then we go into the doubler. Mm-hmm. And once we, and that looks like a pot still. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's continuous. Oh, okay. Which is kind of strange. Oh, and I'll explain kind of how that works in a minute. So... Then we re-distill it again, and it comes off that at 140. Okay. So what we're essentially doing there is we're leaving behind some more of those congeners, the ones again we're selecting. So it's going from 130 to
0: 140, and so you okay? Yeah. So
2: it's like a cleaning step, an extra cleaning step. Yeah. 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 So we still get a lot of that. You know, comes off the the beer still pretty clean. We could probably put that in the barrel and it'd be fine. But the doubler just makes it that much cleaner.
0: Okay. Okay. Have you ever run those experiments where you, you know, put the spear in before it goes to the doubler, put it into barrel and, and see what happens?
2: No. No. We pulled samples. Yeah. I probably have some here. We could try to dig some up later. You could taste the difference. It's subtle, but there's definitely yeah. you can tell okay. it's it's a little rougher. Oh, a little okay. greasier. I think that's what one of the, uh, oh, okay. it's, it's some of the high boilers. It's the ones that, yeah. that are volatile at, yeah. at higher temperatures. Those are the ones that get left behind yeah, that makes sense. in the doubler. Because yeah. in the doubler, yeah. it's, that's essentially a pot still. So you're at temperature X. Mm-hmm. So everything that's volatile below that temperature yeah. is gone. So the low boilers, yeah. you're not cutting any of those off. But fortunately, that's, that's not what we're trying to cut off there. Mm-hmm. We're trying to cut off the ones that are volatile at the higher temperature that isn't reached in the doubler. Uh, the problem there is, though, um, this is, you know, with the pot still, it's, it's a batch process. So mm. each time you're just refining it and you're eventually losing what you don't want. That's, that happens kind of naturally because the nature of the process. With us, you get that buildup because it's mm. got to go somewhere. So, for example, like in the doubler, if we run, I said we're continuous, mm. but about every week we have to stop. And boil out the doubler because those high boilers, just because they're not going out the top of the still, they're going somewhere. Yeah. They're not going anywhere, I guess is a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, staying yeah. right there. They're in the doubler. Okay. Oh, and right. you'll start to see that, even though they're not hitting that point, just with the thermodynamics and vapor pressures and all, they will carry over into the final product at a high enough concentration. Interesting. So you get enough of it in there you start to get a little bit of a greasy character in the distillate. Okay. And because of that, and it usually takes, it's more like a week and a half, two weeks, mm-hmm. you'll start to see that. But our protocol is just every week we stop, we uh, flush out the still, and boil out the doubler. Hmm. which essentially we, we crank the heat up, volatilize all that stuff, recharge it with fresh water, huh. and then start over again fresh. Okay.
1: Huh. Okay. And when you're saying greasy, are you saying greasy separate from oily? Would you say oily is a good thing that you would look for in your distillate, but greasy is other greasy's got yeah, like, greasy's like almost like a thin viscosity to it or even an off note of flavor.
2: It's an off note, almost I wouldn't want to say like oxidized cooking grease, but you know, it's oh, okay. It's not like that bad. It's just more of a, it's oily. Yeah. It's yeah. greasy, it's yeah. almost has too much of a negative connotation. Yeah, yeah. Um. But oily can kind of be good in some sense. Yeah. Sure so yeah. It's somewhere between oily and greasy. Yeah. And it's just kind of heavy. I guess another good way to put it. Okay. You you kind of lose the the light, bright, and and elegant character, which is kind of what we're trying to target because we don't want a real heavy. Yeah. Distillate. We don't want it to be real grainy or greasy. Okay. Because we're trying to get the those more delicate flavors. We try so hard to evolve in fermentation from the yeah. yeast strains mm-hmm. that, that we don't want to botch it all by yeah. distilling or yeah. distilling a heavy yeah, spirit. That
0: makes perfect sense. S- to that point, really quick, we got a, a question from Tim Mushaw. We okay, think that's yeah. how it's, his name yep. is pronounced. He says, um, I've been curious about the different yeast strains. Uh, I know as a home brewer that yeast could play a big role. How much of that carries through after distillation and how does it impact the blending?
2: A lot of it carries through. I I know the yeast strains probably... Again, because we're selectively distilling off the right flavors based on the balance of the still. I'm sure there are other compounds that are produced differently from different yeast strains. But through the distillation, we're isolating the light, the good of, of the congeners yeah. from each individual yeast strain. And so the end product is a different smelling distillate, different tasting distillate, right. and subsequently a different age spirit. And each one of those is aged independently. So we have, we have a barrel and you can point at any given barrel in our warehouse and mm. on the side, it will have the, the recipe. Oh yeah. Yep. So we, we let it age independently. And then at the end, that's when we bring them together for either consistency. Mm-hmm. In most cases, it's, it's consistency, unless we're creating a new mm-hmm. product or doing like a limited edition, yeah. or we're doing something like the private barrel program. Yes. And that's, that was sort of the, the second, um, or the evolution of the whole 10 recipes it was always just for consistency and then like in 2006 when we decided to do small batch yeah first well at least in my you know we had single barrel mm-hmm. but that was when i was around for it. we decided we we're going to do a new product we were starting to gain some traction here in the u.s and we realized we need something else in our portfolio and we realized we had these 10 recipes that we could pull from to create something that was distinctly different from the other two Your products standard line, yeah and that's what we still do today so the the Recipes are used for consistency and yeah. again and to differentiate the products because they're different characteristics.
0: I, I love the single barrel program. I think I've got 48 <laughs> different single barrels sitting on my shelves. Wow. <laughs> I mean, part of it is
1: 428 or 48?
0: 48. Really? <laughs> I do. Too short of 50. Well, you know what it That's is? That's amazing. You have all ten recipes. We've got all ten recipes accounted for, and there's certain people that that I know pick really good barrels. Uh huh. And so, like Gene Absolutely. at Warehouse yeah. Liquors, yeah. right? I you
1: were gonna mention Gene, yeah.
0: And uh, he just, I mean, talk about a ma- he's he's a master in his own right of just. Not only selecting good barrels, but usually when he does, he'll select two very different barrels to have this, you know, point and counterpoint. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I know if I'm in Chicago, make room in my suitcase because I'm coming home with some <laughs> of Gene's great. picks. And so, you know, we had just, um, just about a year and a half ago, me and about 10, 12 of my buddies, we all brought... Some four roses single barrels and did almost like a, I'm terrible at sports. But what do they do when you when you bet on the 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 basketball players, the March Madness? Oh,
1: fantasy! Oh, yeah, oh, March the bracketing, you're, the bracketing. Okay, you are talking March
0: Madness. Yeah, and so that that was a night. So oh, nice. yeah, I mean that your single barrel program talks to me. <laughs> it speaks to me.
2: I think it talks to a lot of people. Yeah, and yeah. I understand why. It's. Yeah. I think it really is one of the things that. Sort of sets us apart from, you know. I think everyone has a barrel program, and everyone mm-hmm. has a good barrel program. Mm-hmm. But I think what I like about ours, well, I know what I like about ours, is the variety, and yeah, and the way it it talks to consumers that the guys that really yeah are interested in looking at different flavors or yeah. collecting different yeah. recipes.
0: Well, I you know I really like what you were saying. Where you're talking about consistency, consistency, consistency. However, when I hear that, I, I'm hearing. Consistency of quality, not necessarily consistency of flavors, especially when it comes to that line. Oh, with that, you're it's looking
2: for unique, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah, with the four roses bourbon, small batch, you want consistency. Yes. Single barrel, standard one hundred proof, you want some degree of consistency, but you want consistency in the batches that you select. Yeah. Yeah. Inevitably you're gonna get variation from barrels. Yeah. And our standard single barrel is typically seven or eight years old. Private yeah. barrel selections are anywhere from 8 up to 11 sometimes. Mm-hmm. If they're selected yeah. on the tail end of 11, they get bottled at 12 Yeah, years. So you have a wider range of age there. And everything that goes in from a certain batch is all exactly the same when it goes into the barrel. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of extrapolate that. I mean, on day two, they're all exactly the same. Day yeah. Year one, they're all still pretty much the same. But as you go out, those 290 barrels or whatever it might be from that batch, yeah. they all start to the little differences in the barrels really start to to matter. Yeah. So you get out to single barrel age or especially the private barrel age, you, you look mm-hmm. at an, an eight, nine, 10 year old batch that say OBSQ that's really fantastic. You know, at that stage, those barrels each is developing its own characteristic. Yeah. And that's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. And that's why you get, like you're saying, you, certain people that really tend to to sniff out the good ones. Yeah, exactly. So
0: to, to carry Tim's question a little further, and I know we wanted to talk too about, you've got 130 years coming up, so we wanted to talk about that. But Tim's question about yeast being carried through to distillation. Uh-huh. So now you've got eight, nine, 10, 11 years in maturation. So is that yeast still doing its job during maturation? Or if you've got, you know, new charred oak barrel that's imparting a lot of flavors. Like you had said, you know, a year in, now you're starting to see some development. Fast forward, and it's really changing the spirit in a certain way. How much work does that yeast continue to do
2: in the spirit overall to to that final product? It depends on the yeast strain. They all behave differently through time. Uh, For example, like the K yeast. Yeah. If you look at like a four or five year old K yeast, or five years starting to get its character, but three, four years old, you're not really seeing much of that character. You start hitting five, six, seven years old, it really mm-hmm. starts to develop. Oh, okay. And it's a lot of it is the flavors themselves that you get out of the off the still, and it's the interaction mm-hmm. of the compounds that are coming off the still that are in the the, the distillate with the oxygen with the barrel, the barrel compounds. There's so many things that are going on there, mm-hmm. so the, uh, the beginning mix will will change through time with the reactions that take place. But you still in general get the same same category of flavors. Like if you, if you smell the, a distillate of uh, OESQ, you're gonna get the hint of you know, rose petals or potpourri, yeah, and you know, that yeah. hint of floral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You put it in a barrel, eight years later, you're still going to have hints of yep. that. Yep. Um But like with the keys, if you go out maybe 15, 16 years, might be sometimes at that point because they're so delicate, mm. the oak might be overpowering, and you might not get the the same flavors.
0: Okay. Um, okay.
2: But and like the OBSV, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know sometimes we have batches that that evolve into something totally different. Yeah. And that's one, and for whatever reason, and chemically, I don't understand why there's so many. It's probably too hard to be a research project itself just to figure out what's happening if you could ever get an answer, but whatever it is in that composition of that, and I'm just using this as an example, that OBSV, that some of those batches, for whatever reason, when they hit 13, 14 years old, these new flavors that weren't there before start to develop. That's amazing. I
0: love that.
2: That's very cool. Very nice. It it is. And people ask me all the time, it's like, what's your your favorite (laughs) recipe? Yeah. Like, well, sometimes it depends on the age. Like, at certain ages, I like certain recipes more than others because of, like, what flavors they're hitting, you know, what stride they're at yeah. at that particular age. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's uh,
0: almost like capturing a moment in time. At eight years old, it's going to taste like
2: X, and at 10 years old, it's going to taste like Y. Well, a good example of that is, like, when we first started the program, the Private Barrel Program, at that time, we weren't letting any cues age much beyond six years old because the only place really? we were using those was in the uh, Four Roses bourbon. So my original inclination was, I was like, well, I don't think this is going to do so well because at five, six years old, it's a good bourbon, but it's kind of one-dimensional. Mm. It's more of a top note. It's, it's part of the, the entire body. It's just mm-hmm. an additive yeah. Yeah. flavor component. to yeah. component. So I really standing alone i'm tasting it barrel strength, and it's good but it's just kind of it's like it's floral that's Uh kind of all i'm getting here so i was like well this will offer all 10 but i didn't think that would really go over well but turns out you you let that sit in a barrel for two three more years and because those notes are delicate they start to come down it -hmm. it starts to not be so so one-dimensional it starts to get more complex because as that floral kind of comes down and melds with the sweetness of the oak and all those other complex flavors of the oak, Mm. it turns out to be, it it was a great surprise, to say a pleasant surprise would be an understatement, Mm. to see how at seven, eight, nine years old, those cues are so different than they are at five. I And it's a lot of the same same characteristics, but it's all about the balance and how one's coming down a little bit while the others come up and they just hit that sweet spot.
1: That's very cool. It's just interesting to me that, one could be a distiller who says, you stick it in, it has its flavor profile, all it does is get older, it might get softer. To hear about components that evolve and really change based on age is remarkable. And having access to that warehouse to be able to go through that must just be an
2: absolute joy as part of your job. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, and you look at so many, there's so much to be learned, and in a lot of cases, it's it's more simple. You know, you have that curve where you've got your original flavor profile, mm-hmm. and you can assume what's gonna happen, and it does. It starts to get sweeter, oakier, richer, and then you hit eight, nine, 10 years old, and you start to get lose some of those lighter characteristics, and it starts to, in some cases, matter less what the yeast strain was or what the original character was, because what you're essentially getting is extracted oak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah you extrapolate that far enough and that's all you have is just liquid oak. You know, if you go out. yeah, And it yeah. depends. You, there are always exceptions. I've tasted plenty of 20-plus-year-old bourbons where you, they evolved and there, there's mm-hmm. something unique there. Yeah. And I've tasted mm-hmm. some, it's like, no, it just tastes like liquid mm-hmm. oak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are always exceptions. And part of, like with the Private Barrel Program or our limited editions, it's finding those exceptions, finding the ones that mm. are not just going, taking the curve up, Maturing, 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 hitting their peak, yeah. and kind of tapering slowly off. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. Different things can be waiting for you around the corner. Uh-huh. And that that sounds pretty exciting. G- given that you're describing a, a pretty well-oiled machine here, uh-huh. uh, I know you've got expansion going on. You've got your hard hat zone right now. Um, speak to us a little bit about what's happening with the expansion, and then if if you wouldn't mind, if there are not necessarily concerns there, but aspects that you're very aware of on what's going to happen with your distillate as you have an expanded distillery
2: to work with well i'll address the concerns first of course there's always the concern but i'm not worried if that makes sense like we're keeping an eye on all of the uh, yeah. very important know, pressure points throughout production to make yeah. sure that everything is exactly the same okay so i guess in this case it's a good thing to be concerned because we're keeping an eye on everything to make sure that yeah. nothing has changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're concerned about everything, you don't have to worry. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah so no, I'm absolutely. not worried about it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep. but we're watching everything closely yeah. just so we don't have any unforeseen issues. Yeah. And that goes back. That was kind of our philosophy and our, our, um, our approach to this from the very beginning. Because if you look at, um, like our, our sales trajectory or projections and you look at our capacity, it really, when we decided to do this, I think it was 2014-15. When we realized that we needed to expand, we didn't necessarily need to double. Okay. You know, we don't need here, and and we'll be finished, mm. mostly finished in September. Five, six years from this year, we're not going to double our sales overnight. Mm-hmm. It's not like yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, you know, it would make more sense really just kind of ease into that from a from an investment standpoint and a demand standpoint. But the problem with that is if we try to go out there and just add like a, or add a bigger still or a smaller supplemental still, or just add a few fermenters and try to just incorporate Mm -hmm. all, it could throw things out of balance. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so Mm -hmm. many things that we control. We understand pretty much everything that's going on. Well, we can control everything that's going on out there. We understand a great deal of it. But there's always that little bit of unknown, uh-huh. and so that I guess sure. that's kind of where the art comes yeah. in. Exactly, sure. and it's what keeps it interesting. Yep. Again, because it's a natural product, we can't yeah. control. We can control everything on our end: the, mm-hmm. how we're running the equipment, wh- how we analyze um, tests, and check for spec- You know, make sure everything's in specification, uh, whether it's fermentation or the quality of the grains coming in or the proofs coming off the doubler. We can look at all that temperatures and everything, but there's still a little bit that's left a chance and you have to respect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if we went and said, okay, well let's, let's do this cheaper. Let's do it maybe on the back of the property. We can still yeah. pull from the salt river. Let's do, you know, a, a smaller version of this and keep everything. You know, we can put pencil and paper, have the engineers make sure that everything's balanced. Right. Uh-huh. But then if we do that and five years later, when stuff comes out of the barrel, it's not the same or it comes off the still and it's not the same. Uh-huh. It's like, well, what do we do now? Four <laughs> Roses A and Four Roses B. You know, it's not going to be the same product, yeah. yeah. And we don't want to mess with this product that has gotten us to where we are today. Sure. So our proposal was more expensive, more time-consuming, and a lot more difficult. Our proposal to our parent company, Kieran, mm-hmm. to, to get the money to do this expansion was: we had to do it. It was just one proposal. So we had to do it on site. We had to do it under the same roof, and had to be a doubling of what we're currently doing. Okay. So it would be one system running the same balance yeah. that we're currently doing and that was it. That was our proposal. And we <laughs> fortunately <laughs> for us, yeah. Um, you know, we're, it's like just kind of handed the proposal over and cringe, just waiting for a, you know, are you crazy? <laughs> but uh, we were just so so excited and happy that they, they said, Okay, we understand. Wow, that's fantastic. That is and wonderful. So it was yeah. a big investment. And, you know, we're going to have a lot of challenges moving forward because we're going to have more capacity mm-hmm. and, you know, we're growing so fast anyway that in the last 10 years, it's been nothing but yeah. adding people, adding markets, great. trying to, just trying to keep up with demand. Mm-hmm. And that's now it's going to keep up because we're going to have more liquid. So it's going to be mm-hmm. a continual growing. But, um, you know, fortunately, Kieran, our our, the Japanese company that owns us, they understand the whole quality. They didn't question that. When we proposed, You know, it was more money and it was going to be a lot more effort. We got their buy-in and now we're just about complete. Yeah. But
1: but there's that Q word again when, when we're, you're talking quality and as you were talking about consistency of quality uh-huh. and the fact that you can base a proposal around quality, take that to the parent and the parent says, I see what you're saying about quality. And uh-huh. I approve of that. Like that speaks very positively to what's happening with Four Roses as a brand and Four Roses as a product. And uh-huh. that, that seems like your your fan base, your consumers, call them what you will, can really trust in what's happening mm-hmm. at uh-huh. Four Roses Distillery. That, that's the way I hear it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, can you, do you talk about uh, number of barrels produced in a day and, and how many barrels you'll you'll be producing in a day after expansion?
2: Yeah, we do. um, I'd have to plot a calculator. We we do almost a lot a day. We do about 22, 23 lots a month. Okay. And each lot is between 280 to 290 barrels.
1: Okay. Okay. I think people can calculate that yeah. at home. Yeah. They yeah. can pull out their own damn calculators. Some time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just if they're driving, will burn tape. On, you guys use some tape.
2: <laughs> yeah, take out a <laughs> slide rule and an abacus. That's, yeah,
1: they can make that happen. <laughs> um, and and then and where will you go after expansion?
2: Eventually, we'll be double. Okay. Double yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. we'll um, be the full. Currently, right now, we're we're poised to have like currently we have twenty three fermenters and a beer well, so essentially twenty four yeah. fermenters. We're poised to double that. Um, right now we have eight new fermenters that are going online in September. Wow. But as I mentioned, we're keeping everything balanced. Yeah. So what that means, it's going to be a little bit strange for a while because okay, we'll have, try to follow me here. We've got, <laughs> okay, so we've got 23 fermenters yeah. or 24, let's say, count the beer well. Each lot is eight fermenters. And that takes um, a little over a day to run eight fermenters. Mm-hmm. So it's basically one day. You're mashing and filling eight fermenters, about three yeah. and a half hours to do each one. Yeah. Then three and a half days later, those reach the still. So it's just a continual it's a moving gotcha. process. So okay. throwing eight more fermenters in the mix, we're not going to still go one, two, three, four, yeah, and just add those to it because that would throw the timing all off. So but now we have two stills, two doublers, um, two yeast rooms. We're we're doubling all of that on the tail end wow. also. Okay. So what we're going to do is Two out of three days, we're going to operate just like we were. And, or for two out of three lots, we'll operate like we were. We'll, we'll mash and then run one still, mash, distill, mm-hmm. one lot. But then every third lot, we'll be able to double mash. So, so every third day, we'll be mashing into those other fermenters. Mm-hmm. And fire. And then three days after that, firing up that other still and doubler yes. and running all okay. that through those and then shutting those down. So it's like, when it's all up and running, it'll be both stills, both doublers, double the fermenters, they'll all be running at yeah. once. Yeah. And we'll all be actually running, we didn't want to separate the system, we didn't want to have like system A, system B. So it's also going to go, when the streams will connect and then separate again at the still. So once we're dropping from a, from a fermenter, it will go to the drop tub and that will be from either system, you know, fermenters one through twenty-three, or the other side, uh-huh. the, the tail end of them. They'll all go into that that drop tub, and then from there, be diverted into both stills. Yeah. And then that stream from the stills and the doubles will be diverted back together into one one tank. Gotcha. So that's great. Uh,
1: and, what, and what will this mean for then maturation and storage? Uh, last year, Josh and I were over at the other uh, four Rosies. Uh, and site site that's a good word uh-huh. and, and and you had very uh low maturation warehouses. much uh-huh. more familiar to me look like dunnage warehouses in scotland um yes do you do two high do you do three high are you doing a couple of floors that are three high we like, do uh six high
2: okay uh-huh and it, is it one floor six high yeah it's one floor what's it's it's one through three, and then four through six. Gotcha. So there's a little break there. Gotcha. But it's it's one floor. We don't have. Um, it's just a single story. Yeah, okay. It's just one floor. Is it
0: palletized or on on the side? On ricks. It's on ricks. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. Okay. And that was something. Those were built in the '60s by Seagrams, oh, right. yeah. and that was back when everybody was rotating, mm-hmm. and yeah. for obvious reasons, you know, because temperature mm-hmm. plays yep. such a role, and you've got the variation depending on the the elevation in the warehouse. So, um, Seagram's had the idea just to make them shorter and longer yeah. and wider. That was brilliant. Yeah, really. Uh, yeah. And we love that, especially me because uh-huh. I'm dealing <laughs> with 10 recipes anyway. <laughs> I yeah. can't imagine adding another dimension, you know, the fifth dimension <laughs> yeah. just would destroy me. You know, we don't need, there's enough there to deal with You know, other people use that to their advantage, and that's great, uh-huh. yeah. because you do get such different characteristics depending on where you're aging where the warehouse, the yeah, sure. warehouse. Uh-huh. But by design, ours are consistent so that you don't see differences.
1: So, so so even as you're expanding, are you
2: keeping that same model of warehousing? Absolutely, yeah. We're um, just go. about finished with the uh, 21st warehouse. Okay. Uh-huh. Ah. That's remarkable. And we'll be building two more in the next two to three years. Okay. And that's, I think, what you're getting at, yeah. to accommodate the extra yeah.
0: distillation capacity. Uh-huh. So how many how many barrels are you sitting on at any given
2: time? Um, we have the capacity to... Each of those warehouses will hold about 24,000, but you can't operate that full because you yeah. have to have empty ricks to put into. Sure. You have to have room to work. Mm-hmm. And so they're... Anywhere between seventy and eighty percent full most of the time.
1: Okay, it's good expansion. I wish you all the best, and, and keeping your eye on those quote unquote concerns that you're not concerned about. <laughs> <laughs> but like
2: the still is going to be designed exactly the same. Yeah, everything that we could, pretty much we can control everything because we're we're doing it all all that part from scratch. Mm-hmm. It's all designed exactly the way it currently is. We want to minimize any chance for. Yep. You can look at a million things and say, "Oh, that doesn't matter," but then all of a sudden yeah. you have a million things that, you know, what if a few of them do matter and they decide yeah. to team up against you, and then you have five things that didn't matter aligning, <laughs> you know, that that are a surprise, and then yep. all of a sudden you're off track. Yeah, and you don't know how you got there. Yeah. Yep.
0: No, absolutely. So I'm looking here um, at uh, at some of your single barrels. I know we don't have much time left, but um, like the 2011 single barrel, for instance. Uh huh. Now, that shows up all over the country. So you're you're dealing with a lot of different single barrels. So when something like that happens or with the, you know, um, the Elliott Select, which, by the way, the first bottle I ever got of that was bottle number 80 of whatever. I'm thinking, Uh. I can't open bottle number 80. Anyway, um, so did you open it? I didn't. I didn't open it. I got to taste it. So I'm like, okay, I got my bottle. But I, I never. Is
2: there happened. anything y'all haven't tasted while we're talking? Might as well put a sample in front of you. Yeah, no, I have to get off track here. What,
1: yeah, whatever you think is is interesting. Anything we could uh, geek I out on? I guess you tried
2: Al's fiftieth.
0: I have not. Have Jason not? has not. I have not. Well, I wouldn't mind a revisit. Okay, I'll do that one then.
1: Beautiful. That's where we started. here. Yeah. you grab just so grab
0: but, a couple glasses there? But my my question. Are you piping? Uh, yeah, be rude <laughs> not to, <laughs> wouldn't it? I?
1: Yeah, I got two here. Oh, okay.
0: So when you're doing that single barrel program that shows up across the country, are you looking for single barrels that are as close as could be? Or do you find, you know, here's the one that's going to go into Illinois and that's going to be such and such flavor profile and so on?
2: There's no consideration of where different barrels will or won't go. The only consideration is once a batch is selected for that. And by the way, we don't even do the limb tradition single barrels anymore. But yeah. when we did, it was
0: oh, that's right, I forgot that, of,
2: that ended. Yeah, yeah, we discontinued that. Well, there's a funny story behind that too. But so <laughs> we, um, so it's kind of like the regular single barrels, going through and finding the best batch. Mm. That's and for that, people expect ten years plus, And so we have certain batches that we're holding over for special projects. Mm. special products and it's just selecting yeah a really good batch yeah and then it's looking at individual barrels and making sure that there aren't any that are just way out in left field yeah kicking those out and then from there it's just bottling them all and then they just go wherever okay there's there's no control no
0: control no rhyme
1: no reason they're all
2: okay they're all selected because they're very good so really then it's just yeah arbitrary differences or subjective differences yeah
1: well, here's a, here's a yeah, cheers yeah. to Al Young and the. Cheers, Al. <laughs> cheers. And to you, sir. Thank you. Oh, wow. Mm.
2: That's the top Such of my list a- for things we've done.
1: That is wonderful on the palate. Mm. It's wonderful all the way around. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is what are the things that you feel the most pride in? You know, things that you've bottled, you've blended
2: and said, man, that was good. Uh (laughs) That's tough. Uh, This is up there. Yeah. I like uh, 2015 Small Batch a lot. It's one of my favorites. I've got three bottles of that. Like 13 a lot. Jesus Christ.
1: (laughs) So this is just a small collection of Four rosies compared to what's sitting in your house? Is that what's happening right now?
2: Oh, yeah. This is nothing. (laughs) I get plenty of guys that come here like... Yeah, nice collection. <laughs> <laughs> They'll block their phone and totally humbled. They have uh, 10 times uh, as
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> many. Yeah, I probably need to work harder on this collection. Uh, the, the
1: other the other trouble with asking you, we we were interviewing Eddie Russell at, at Well Turkey uh, early in uh, the last year and he started to talk about Favorite warehouses based uh-huh. on our question. Uh, he started talking about favorite warehouses, and of course, anybody who goes to Wild Turkey now will ask for those warehouses, asking you things you're very proud of. The secondary market is now going to blow up on those particular bottles <laughs> even more than they were. Well, I don't know. I think up. they know. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs>
0: well, you're, you're suggesting a secondary market exists. I don't know. It's a know. it's a rumor.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's a, a, a it's myth. It's <laughs> perpetuated.
2: It's, it's on the dark web, I hear. Oh, the dark okay. web, yeah. <laughs> that thing. <laughs> no, it's the funny story behind the, I don't know how funny it is, but the single barrel limited edition. In 2014, we had to make a decision because there really is a finite number of really good older barrels and badges mm. that we have. And we realized, when we started out with the program, it was Jim's 40th, it was 2007. Yeah. We did that release, it was a single barrel, I think it was an OESO. And we did 1,700 bottles. Wow. And you know, that was the, the market then. That was about right. And then the next year we had to do a little bit more. And same thing with a small batch of the first Mariage, I think we did like maybe 2,400. And that was in 2008. OK. And so every year we started adding more and more. And then fast forward to like last year, I think we did Al's was 10,000 some odd bottles. Um, the 2017 small batch was mm. globally, and most of it still in the U.S., was maybe 10,000 in the U.S., maybe 3,000 in Europe and Japan. Yeah. So the same thing was happening with the single barrel. It was growing like that also. problem with single barrel is that's one batch. And yeah. roughly speaking, if you're going to do 10,000 bottles at 12 to 15 years old, you're looking at at least 100 barrels. It's a lot. Yeah. So year after year, we we're gonna have to. It was easy when we were doing three, four, six thousand bottles, but to satisfy the demand, because with something like that, you can't mm. make your own happy. You, can, you do five thousand bottles, you make five thousand people happy, you make fifteen thousand people upset, and we—that's <laughs> oh, just the unfortunate, you know. this yep. for every action, you know. It's, <laughs> but so, but we want to try to get this yeah. into as many people's hands as we can, yeah. but still maintain the quality and the, yep. the age. So. We realized that at that quantity, eventually, something would have to suffer. Yes. So we didn't want that to happen. And the second part of that is we realized that those batches that were being stretched for the single barrel could help maintain the age and the quality of the small batch product. Yeah. Because with that, it's much easier. If it's 10,000 bottles, it's easy to find two, three, four batches Mm. to mingle together to make that product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I personally, I like single barrels because of what they are. There's just some mystique to that. You know, that's, it's, <laughs> it's pure, it's natural. That's what was in the barrel. Yeah. But from a blender's perspective, mm-hmm. I like blending. There's not a single barrel I've met that I haven't thought, well, yeah, but I could always do this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always <laughs> something. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you know, I'm kind of more on the, the, the mingling side of, okay. of things. So uh, That's, I was really happy that we went that direction. That was 2014. So we made the announcement. We said, Mm -hmm. that's it. That's our last uh, limited edition single barrel. And then Jim decided to retire at 49 years. And so that was 2015. Mm -hmm. Then 2000, just like a month after he retired, marketing came to me. And they're like, I can't remember how they put it, but essentially what they were saying was, we lost an icon and now we're, we got you and nobody knows who you are. So, <laughs> welcome to the team. <laughs> yeah. Like, we, this brand needs something. Yeah. So, good and, luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everywhere I went, it's like, you got big shoes to film. Like, yeah, you think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> heard just about enough of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so, so, they were saying, we need to do something to introduce you or to get your face out there Mm -hmm. and I didn't know they meant it quite literally if you look at the bottle you know it's got my my big head right on the side of it (laughs) so um, you said big we didn't (laughs) (laughs) on the bottle it's small but I think (laughs) with perspective you can you can derive that it's a big oh look at that yeah initially it was like a photograph like they showed to me the the marketing team came in they had this mock-up I was like no that's it was almost embarrassing it was like a photo truth yeah and then um they said well let's do like line art yeah and, like yeah. wall street journal but editors yeah it's exactly. like okay yeah. maybe let me think about it and then i got to thinking about it it's like you know i think as i was thinking about my kids it's like they'll think that's pretty cool <laughs> <Nice>. dad's <laughs> yeah. head's yeah. on a bottle so they came back with this and i was like okay that'll do nice and uh but essentially that was we were going back on what we just said we weren't going to do you know we're not going to do a single barrel you know because all these good reasons, <laughs> oh, except this year. It's yeah. so like you know, one year later, yeah, like exactly. okay, never mind, we're gonna do it now. Surprise. So that was <laughs> yeah, that was a special case, and it was we were already gearing up to do a special release for Jim's fiftieth. We were looking at crystal decanters. I'd already gotten all the samples in to start oh, blending. Wow. Yeah, and uh, looking back, it's obvious because we were trying to get Jim to sign off, get his input. I was trying to get him to come down and and collaborate on some some blending. Yeah, trying to. The bottle design was a real one. We'd be like, hey, Jim, what do you think about this? Oh, you know, he's, oh, let's talk about tomorrow. And he was all, looking back what he was doing, he didn't want to, he knew he was retiring. Mm, yeah. He knew that the 50th anniversary was not going to happen. And so he didn't want us to waste our time. Mm. But we just thought he was being difficult. We're like, what's, what's up? <laughs> Jim, we've got to get this out. This is your 50th anniversary. <laughs> so we had already started. I'd already started working on some test blends and stuff. And um, I had all the samples pulled. So we were kind of poised to go ahead, because mm. that's really the first stage of, as I mentioned earlier, doing a limited edition. So a lot of the legwork had been done. Yeah. So when they came to me, they said, what could we do? I said, well, I know we have some uh, good batches that really, I know we said we wouldn't do it, but could be used as a single barrel. And it makes a lot of sense to do that because we'd always done single barrel in the fall. I mean, single barrel in the spring, small batch mm. in the fall. So I was like, let me go revisit those and uh, see if there's a batch that... I'd like to put into a bottle that, you know, to commemorate or not to, to introduce me. Yeah. And so I found that batch and then we went back on what we just said and we <laughs> revived the limited edition single barrel, but we're not going to do it again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Probably guaranteed more or less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> more or less. We're never going to do it again. Mostly. <laughs>
1: Wow. Yeah, this is, this is excellent whiskey. Yeah. It almost has a little dustiness on the nose. Just a very subtle dustiness.
2: I think that's that uh, 23-year-old in there. Yeah, okay. Well, it's a low percent. It's like 6%. Okay. Retarding five and ended up the dump okay. was six. But it just gives it like a nice undercurrent of like antique oak. and. Mm-hmm. F- mm-hmm.
1: But going from that subtle dustiness on the nose to then this luscious oil on the palate... And that was why I made that comment on the tasting of it, where I was just so surprised after coming in from the nose that it had so much texture to it, and texture is my thing, his thing. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's so noticeable and something we always uh, look out for, and so I was blown away by that. And then just this nice finish, it just keeps going. So yeah, that's a cracking whiskey. Yeah, thank you for sharing.
2: Well. Thanks for the comments. Yeah, we're proud of that one.
1: Yeah. Rightfully so. And you have an open <laughs> bottle of this in your house. I do.
0: I've got an open bottle. Yeah, I had a... Uh,
1: <laughs> Never I, noticed your Four rosies collection. I've always been... Really?
0: Yeah. Because you're always paying attention. So I've got <laughs> two sides. So there's the Scotch whiskey side. Okay. And my, my various old, like, dusty blends and things like that. And then on the left side is are my American whiskeys. Yep. You just have to look to the left. I know your <laughs> neck hurts. <laughs> now you know it. <laughs> uh,
1: um, so what, one thing we do with every interviewee, uh, and, and certainly for every episode of our podcast, is we close out with a misconception. Okay. And so the, the, the number one that everybody brings up, we bring it up plenty of times as well, is age, right? Okay. And, and don't, don't judge whiskey by the age. As we've discussed through this podcast... Uh-huh age isn't necessarily better for you it might be an evolved difference something else might happen so so with with age to the side as the the universal misconception is there something you encounters or something you hear either about four roses as a brand about bourbon uh, as a category just something that always kind of grinds your gears a little bit
2: hmm <laughs> yeah age is a good one <laughs> right. right, that's where your mind just goes. Sounds like yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can't use that. I think a historical misconception that I think most people understand now or, or don't subscribe to anymore is that bourbon isn't at parity with like Scotch whiskey. Mm. That it's doesn't have the complexity. That it doesn't have mm. the, the depth, the elegance, and so I don't know if that's valid because I, I think the public understands now. I think that's part of the renaissance. I think it's the the opening of the curtain, the, uh-huh. the eureka moment by the public that people now realize that there's a wide variety of bourbons, different characteristics, yeah. different nuances. There's the, you know, whether you're looking at differences in our products or us versus any of the other competitors, you know, they're all, they're just different. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. That adds the, the variety and the depth to the industry, to the category. Yeah. And I don't think we were perceived that way. It probably wasn't even as true 15 years ago because you didn't have a variety of products. So we've kind of reacted to that, you know, with chicken or the egg. You know, we've mm-hmm. reacted to that uh-huh. by, by digging and saying, oh, you want to see what we can do differently? And every producer is like, okay, well, we're going to do this. Whether it's a private yeah. barrel program, yeah. whether it's a, a non-chill filtered offering, whether it's barrel strength, whatever it is. Yeah the offerings are out there because the consumers start to see that. Yeah. And then we start the, the momentum in the market or the the curiosity of what the producers could do, mm. we reacted to that. And so it's just it's just grown exponentially. now I think that the perception's changed a lot and people are starting to understand.
1: Well even the fact you can have barrel programs where this retailer's offering is different from that retailer's offering. The uh-huh. fact you can come out with 10 different recipes. Um, the fact that as you look up the retail store shelves, you can go from, okay, maybe a, maybe a $10 handle will give you one keynote, But as you work your way up the shelves, a $50 bottle will do something different from, uh-huh. from the $10 mm. handle. The other thing for me, you know, cutting my teeth in Scotch, is when I first came to Bourbon, the sweetness was overwhelming, mm. and and so I did go from bourbon to bourbon to bourbon, going sweet, sweet, sweet. But as you pay attention, the higher rye does one thing, different aging does another thing, different distillery does another thing. And if you uh-huh. if you get past that, so it's like when people tell us, "Oh, I hate Isla whiskey. Oh, just that smoke." And we we get an Isla sample in front of us. The last thing we talk about. It's is smoky. how smoky it is uh-huh. we talk about the bananas we talk about potential almonds we talk about what the wood's doing uh-huh. and I and I do think getting familiar with bourbon as a category there's way more behind that sweetness and and I, I think it's filtering down through whiskey drinkers that I think there's definitely a group of bourbon fanatics lovers leading that charge that you no know, this is much more than, than what you've always thought it is. I think it's trickling down, mm, uh-huh. um, and I think more people are are willing to say, yeah, there's there's more to bourbon as a category. Be patient, be alert, you know, put in your time with it, and you'll be rewarded
2: on it. Absolutely, and I think that's a lot of where our growth is coming from. Yeah, well, it's twofold: just people being yep. you know, a new generation being introduced to it, people looking. Twice or revisiting Mm -hmm. the category and then beyond that it's seeing the variety Mm -hmm. and realizing once you enter into this there's a lot of room to play and explore yeah there's something for everyone yeah it's just fine-tuning your palate
0: just a little bit to discover all those those nuances where at first blush it's like you had said oh that's sweet dig in a bit and all of a sudden you discover layers of complexity that you know if you're just sitting on a porch putting it down, yeah. you're not going to experience that. If you sit with it, pay attention, it's a world of difference.
1: Yeah, right? I, there's, a, there's a group of guys that I drink bourbon with in Virginia, uh, in the Shenandoah Valley, and, and they, they love their bourbon. They're committed to it, and they're, they're somewhere around 60. And Four Roses is one of those funny ones for them where, and, and Bruce was alluding to this yesterday as well, where a generation didn't want to drink their dad's bourbon. Um, mm-hmm. And so when one of my guys was growing up, his dad was a Four Roses guy and always had it. And and I hope I'm not speaking incorrectly here, but f- I think this would have been in the 70s. Um, the four roses that was being consumed was not the best four roses, and you're right. Okay, thank
2: you. I was sort okay. of treading yeah, very was, lightly in the US there. US, it wasn't even a bourbon, so okay, we're okay. not going to stand by that. Okay, yeah. I wanted to <laughs> tread very lightly. Yeah. No, so, no, no. Um,
1: <laughs> and so, but the dad even even to the point where like his trunk would always have four roses in it. So anywhere he went, the four roses was the drink that was pulled out. And so I've got this, you know, these sixty year old friends who to this day will not circle back to Four Roses because of what happened in the 70s Uh with their dad. And and partly, you don't wanna drink your dad's bourbon, but then partly there's there's a real um, commitment to one's brand. And if you're a Buffalo Trace guy, a Wild Turkey guy, a Four Roses guy, that's your brand, that's your identity. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that as the generations come along, that's that's a new consumer for you. That's somebody who says, "Well, I'm not going to drink my dad's bourbon, but what else is out there? What else is happening?" And I th- I, I think that's a remarkable consumer base to have access to, who are going to say, "Okay, mm-hmm. starting today, what do you have? What what can I drink from you?" Like, I think I think that's really remarkable, um, and gives you that opportunity to always be introducing yourself and your brand to a new consumer
2: it does and there's a story behind that too if you look at and people care about the story now Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. every every distiller has their their craftsmanship their their tools their unique ways of production and they know the different products they can make we all know what our strengths are and where we can create something different or something unique and we're all doing that we all Mm -hmm. have the opportunity now because there's demand Mm -hmm. and that's what makes makes it so fun for us Yep. in this this time yep. you know, where bourbon is so popular and so we act on that we get to create different things it makes us happy it's, there's a story behind it and it, it reinforces the uh, differences between distilleries the, the strengths the variety mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's a win-win situation for everybody yeah, yeah. Yep. indeed
1: yeah. Uh, would you mind if we close out with a taste of the one that's got your mug on it? The one that you pulled <laughs> Absolutely out? Absolutely please. <laughs> yeah. If, if we're meeting you for the first time, we should taste the whiskey that introduced you for the first time. Uh, uh, cheers. Just a splash. Thank you.
2: And Unfortunately, this is a lab sample, so I don't even have a proof on it.
1: Oh, fair enough.
2: Well, I can tell you the, the range on these. We did about, I think it was 95 bottles, and they were anywhere from 100 and one proof up to almost 120. Huge <laughs> range there. Amazing swing. Yeah.
0: So if you don't have the multi-leveled warehouses to help dictate where your proof is going to lie, right? And you've got the same barrel entry proof. So why the massive
2: swing? We still see that. Yeah. Even with six barrels high. Yeah. We see differences in proof. Not so much. Well, we see it at, at every age, but yeah. it's insignificant at four or five, six years. Yeah. But you go out like for this product, it's 14 years old. That's one through four tiers. We didn't do any of the fifth or the sixth tiers, okay. And there were some first years we didn't do because some first year barrels because they were below 100. People don't want to go out. If they buy a barrel strength product, yeah. they don't expect it to be yeah. less than hundred proof <laughs> and less than the standard 100 proof single barrel. Yeah. So, it's not unlikely or unheard of to find a first-tier barrel below 90. That happens. If it's out some of the older, older barrels. Wow. Or to find a sixth-tier that's up over 135. Yeah. And those, obviously, they went in at the same proof at 120. Amazing. It's just those, even with the single-story warehouses, just a slight temperature variation from bottom to top. And in ours, I think it's about 8 degrees, okay. like this time of year. hmm So it's not huge. Wow. But day after day, year after year, that small difference is enough to. Essentially, what's happening is on the higher tiers, you're building more pressure and you're forcing more of yeah. the water out. It's a smaller yeah. molecule, so it's leaving, the barrel, and you're concentrating it. Mm-hmm. At the bottom, it's more of a natural. It, it's cooler. It's more like what you'll see in Scotland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. A little more humid yeah. down, toward the ground, and uh-huh. uh, a little more moisture and cooler temperatures yep. okay so you lose the proof God, The flavors in this yeah
0: <laughs> it's a much it's a darker whiskey like deep you know i'm getting coffee grounds and toffee and you know the other one was a bit lighter a bit fruitier yeah brighter um, more
2: complex this is just rich yeah it has its nuances and it has its yeah. complexity but it, it's picked its position it's, yeah. It's in there. Oh, yeah without it's, a
0: doubt without a doubt and this is this speaks exactly to what you were saying before, is the massive swing in flavors. Even from one distillery, you have two totally, di- totally different whiskeys. Uh-huh. And it wasn't always that thought when it comes to bourbon. Like, yep, bourbon is bourbon, but it's oh not Yeah, when, the
2: when that's yeah. not what the demand was, there was no reason yeah. we didn't have a, an excuse to differentiate, it would just be, mm. well, we always do with the 10 recipes, For consistency, but in general, it was okay. Do that, be as consistent as possible, and just do that and keep doing it well. Yeah, which is great, but now it's fun because we get to innovate some and and play and try different things. Yeah,
1: no, this is this is tremendous. This is your classic sipping bourbon. Just so pleasant flavors building on the palate, textures building on top of each other. The depth, the darkness that you're talking about, Joshua. But I'm sitting by a fire while sipping this one. Man, it's perfect for that. Yeah. I really wish I hadn't started a fire in the lab, but uh, it's okay. We still have time. Um, (laughs) Throw some alcohol on it. it (laughs) It's the right place to do it. So
0: So we we know that you've got to take off. So thank you. Oh, look at that. Yeah. (laughs) Get your butt out of there. So, we, yeah, I really want to thank you for your yeah, time. Yeah, really It's been a real pleasure. out here? Just like that. Okay. Yeah, we had one guy who was going like this, and I would try
2: to... Like, <laughs> Well, don't, don't feel bad about reminding me. I'm cool. Cool. Get my toe stepped on over it.
1: Em, embrace all your karaoke dreams. Now's my chance.
0: Just keep, keep it right in front. That's a good question. Do you, do you have a go-to karaoke song? <laughs>
2: I hadn't really thought of that. Come on,
0: everybody has their go-to karaoke song. Uh, e- even if it's in your car and you're like, that, that song comes up on the radio... And that's when you turn it up, and you're going to town on that song.
2: You know, I don't know if I a go to, but I recently, was at uh, my sisters down in Florida. They have like um, an HOA. They have this this general area where they throw parties and stuff for the neighborhood, and it was there with the kids. And it was mostly children at this thing. Yeah. And I got up, and I did, you know the song Friday by Rebecca Black? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great it's actually a big hit The <laughs> you know, kids loved it yeah uh-huh. um so wow. i'm not opposed to self-deprecating yeah for, for the kids that <laughs> <laughs> actually did a pretty good job that's and true. i can't sing i think that's part of what made it so good
1: <laughs> Friday. I, I wouldn't have pegged you for a friday man that's
2: who doesn't like fridays
1: <laughs> well that that that's part true. is very true that's very that's true, true. Even people who work in the booze industry still like Fridays. That's right.
0: <laughs> There's a, just as a quick aside, and then we'll get to the the whiskey conversation. Okay. If you have a chance, if you haven't seen it yet, just do uh, Rebecca Black. Right, that's her name. Uh huh. Yeah. Friday, black metal. Someone like death metalified her song to her video, and it's hilarious. I'll have to check that it's, out. It's 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 worth it.